listening to Science Drives and Wellness Steers. It's season two. I'm your host, Allie Diesenhouse-Kellner. I've been the clinical director of Magnificent Minds, a private school and therapy center for over a decade, and have been supporting teachers, therapists, and parents of spirited kiddos with complex needs for even longer. Think autism, ODD, OCD, trauma, anxiety, learning disabilities, Down syndrome. There's beauty and diversity, folks. Professionally, I'm a bit of an enigma with formal training in counseling psychology and applied behavior analysis. I don't fit neatly into a box. I combine my love for science with my connection to the pursuit of wellness and somehow make sense of worlds that to some may seem at odds. I'm a hippie at heart. I avoid pseudoscience, gluten, and bad vibes. I'm a political advocate and a passionate writer who often puts her foot in her mouth. I'm a sometimes frazzled, not always put together mom, boss lady, and wife who despite knowing what I should do most of the time, finds myself winging it and trusting my intuition. If it strikes your fancy, you can find out more about my education and credentials at magnificentminds.ca. There, you can sign up for my newsletter and we can stay connected. Find me on Instagram at magminds and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Screenshot this episode, tag me, and share the love. If you're new here, welcome to the community. Hello, friends. It has been a hot minute since we've done a podcast episode, but here I am. I have been overwhelmed with the number of people that are checking out my episodes long after they've aired. The numbers are going up and it is absolutely humbling and amazing. So thank you. Today I want to talk about something really exciting uh, for me and I want to talk about something that's really been lighting me up lately in terms of my professional work and all of the learning that I've been doing in this crazy COVID landscape. So what do I want to talk about? I want to start by talking about neurodiversity. I want to talk about what it looks like in schools when we're celebrating neurodiversity and specifically what it looks like in schools when we're not celebrating neurodiversity, when we are, you know, coming into contact with ableism. I want to talk about what ableism is and I want to talk about how we overcome ableism as a society, as we do better, as professionals, as parents, as people who support kids, students, humans who need us to do a little better than we're doing now. So thank you for coming to hang out. I am excited to get into this week's topic. So let's do it without further uh, delay. Let's, let's get right into it. So I guess the main idea here is that as we work to doing better as a society, being aware of our unintentional biases and prejudices, we start to realize that there are systemic barriers and, and these are impacting, you know, minority groups. And it's impossible for us to ignore the impact that this has on education, on the education system, okay? Until very recently, my eyes were honestly closed to a lot of the ways that these systemic barriers impacted my clients, my students. The reality is that some of the things I have been taught in my schooling and in you know my hands-on work in the field is ableist. And when I came to realize that, it really caused me to do a lot more listening and a lot less talking, which 
I kind of hear you. It might be a little ironic for me to be sitting here on a podcast and saying that I have been doing more listening than talking, but the truth is that is what I've been doing, and it is one of the reasons there has not been a new episode out in the last several months. I feel as a society, we right now are all called to check our privilege and to do so much more listening and so much less talking. So I am hoping that by finally starting to talk again, I am opening up the right dialogue about ableism and about how we show up for individuals who are neurodivergent. And uh, let's get into it. So I think it goes without saying that most of us in the field of education and therapeutic intervention are here to help. And while many of us are staunch advocates of equity over equality, we haven't ever really taken a critical eye to some of the practices we implement on a daily basis. And just to sort of take a step back and, and really unpack what that means, the idea that we are for equity over equality means that we recognize that everyone getting the exact same thing, while it may be equal, it's not equitable. And in order to pursue um, you know, equitability and, and being equitable, we really need to be looking at our education system and our practices when it comes to accessibility and ensuring that not just everyone is getting the same, but everyone is getting what they need. Everybody's requirements for overcoming their own barriers, whether systemic or otherwise, are going to be a little different. So for us, if we're really going to do better, we need to be on board with equity over equality. Okay, so it's not going to be everyone gets the same slice of the pie. It's going to be everybody gets the amount that they need. If you need a little more, you can have it. If you need a little less, that's okay too. So I mean, I think it goes without saying as well that while all of this is true and we all strive for equity, no one in their right mind would describe education as a practice that you know disregards individuality. I mean, at the very core of good educational philosophy and practice is the idea that all students, all learners are a little different. And while that may be the rhetoric that you know we sort of like to think we follow, sometimes our practices don't align with that value that we preach. So for us, part of bridging the gap between where we are and where we want to go is again, being a little critical. So where do our values and our day-to-day -day actions not align? And how do we take some actionable steps to have our values and our you know behaviors align so that we work towards this desired outcome? I mean, in education, we're always trying to teach. We're always trying to educate, of course. We're always trying to instill skills. While you know doing all of that, we're not trying to fix. We're not trying to repair. We're just trying to instill information and knowledge and allow students of all ability levels the opportunity to access knowledge, to access opportunities to apply their knowledge. 
The truth about what happens in schools as we are trying to teach and instill knowledge is that a lot of our practices, a lot of the practices that are just sort of commonplace and expected in the school system have this undertone of trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, trying to use a one size fits most approach. Even going as far as saying, you know, they're trying to make special needs kids indistinguishable from their peers. They're trying to make, you know, neurodivergent kids indistinguishable from their neurotypical peers. That language was actually explicitly used in one of my postgraduate studies in the early 2000s. The idea here was that through the science of behavior, through, you know, the, the right educational practices, you can actually make kiddos with significant struggles, you know, appear just like their peers, you know, help them bridge the skill gap and in turn, make them indistinguishable from their peers. I didn't think much about that. But when I look back, and when I sort of think with a critical eye about some of the things I've been taught, and some of the ways that we go about teaching and reaching our kids in education, to me, this just doesn't sit well. The idea that I'm trying to make a neurodivergent kid, so just to backtrack, neurodivergent meaning, you know, varying from the, the sort of neurological profile that we would consider neurotypical. So non-neurotypical is the same as neurodivergent, so neuro and divergent, so diverging from, you know, the, the neurotypical. So to say that we're trying to make a neurodivergent kid or person, human, indistinguishable from a neurotypical person, to me just devalues the uniqueness and the personness of the neurodivergent individual. Why would I try to change, you know, somebody to make them indistinguishable from someone else? Never mind, you know, the neurological composition, never mind neurotypical or neurodivergent. Why would you ever be trying to make two people be exactly the same. It's just weird. And when you reduce that idea to its core components, you can see that a lot of, you know, the the language and the way we teach is is ableist. And ableism is the, you know, idea that individuals with disabilities are, you know, at a considerable disadvantage and, you know, that the the world is made and built for individuals who are fully able in whatever you know capacity so physically cognitively all of these things and that is just so flawed and the world is not only for individuals who are able the world is for everyone individuals who have different abilities who are neurotypical and neurodivergent so again we're going back to these core ideas that we were taught, that I was taught in the early 2000s about how we teach and reach our kids. And what is meant by statements like that is that we can teach kids with neurological differences, the skills that they're lacking or the skills that they need, the deficits that they have, that, you know, the missed milestones, the, you know, gaps in, in skill application. And we can teach them the skills that their peers are going to acquire more organically or, or through trial and error. So while what, you know, the undertone or the core message behind you know, the idea that we're trying to make these individuals indistinguishable from their peers may not sit well. It's not, you know, it's not meant to be 
nasty or meant to be something that says that we don't value the neurodivergent profile. But if you really reduce it again, you know, you're looking at some core values in that statement that just don't align with my core values and don't align with a lot of people in the field's core values right now as well. Um, the idea again is, is well-intentioned and it says, you know, we can teach a kid with any profile the same skills that their neurotypical peers will learn organically. We can do that. And it's meant to be almost empowering sort of for the educator or the therapist in saying, regardless of, of a profile, we can teach all kids. And of course, you know, regardless of the neurological profile or, you know, learning disabilities, you know, physical disabilities, regardless of all of that, everyone can learn. So yeah, but isn't that kind of a given? Like, isn't it a given that anyone can learn skills. It's just how we learn skills that's a little different. So again, the message is not we don't like individuals that are neurodivergent, but if you really reduce it at its core, it kind of says, you know, make them just like everybody else. And again, that to me doesn't sit well with my values and it's not why I'm in the field. I am in the field to teach children with all kinds of, you know, neurological profile skills. I like that idea. And I like the idea of giving, you know, individuals, kids, adults with, you know, neurodivergent profiles, the ability to self-advocate and to, you know, um, live fulfilling lives. That all sounds great. And to do that, you need skills. So that's not the part that's flawed. The part that's flawed is the idea that we are trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And that, again, doesn't sit well with me. And, and it's ableist. And at its core, it's just not, it doesn't align even with the direction that the field of, of you know, education and, you know, the, the, the way that ABA is evolving over time. Um, and don't come at me for that comment, because I know, trust me, I know there are ABA providers who still very much prescribe to that, you know, square peg round hole thing. I get it, but those aren't my people and those shouldn't be your people either. And if you're hanging out on my podcast, I certainly hope that we align in values, at least on that level. But I digress as I do. So while we're addressing skill deficits and gaps in knowledge in our kiddos, neurotypical or neurodivergent, I think this is valid. This is good. This is perfect. This is what education is for. You know, noticing a gap in, in knowledge or a skill and actively trying to teach. <laughs> that's that's cool. No one's arguing that we should be teaching. Um, but what we are arguing is that it needs to be done in a way that respects neurodiversity and not in a way that makes neurodivergent kids just like their peers. If you're different from your peers, then you're just the same as your peers because Everyone is different from their peers. There's no such thing as, you know, quote unquote normal. Every kid in your class, whether or not they have a formal diagnosis, is a little different. So to say, you know, to paint everyone with that same brush and to say, you know, we need to work really hard to get our neurodivergent folks, you know, on the same level or, you know, looking the same and, and learning the same as our neurotypical folks, that makes absolutely no sense. And it's it's flawed because even within the neurotypical, you know, population, the, the diversity that exists in learning styles is, I mean, it's there, you can't refute it. So again, teach them skills and the them in this situation are kids, teach kid, kids skills, of course, teach neurodivergent kids skills, course, teach neurotypical kids skills, of course, teach adult skills, of course, teach yourself skills, of course. The issue is not 
teaching. The issue is not education. The issue is that we are seeing in schools more and more that in trying to teach skills, we are also seeing individuals, professionals, teachers, educators, sometimes even professors trying to make the neurodivergent kiddos just like the other kids, going back to this idea of being indistinguishable. Again, I'm not here for that. I've worked with all kinds of kiddos, from loud kiddos to quiet kiddos, from, you know, the highly vocal kiddos to, you know, kiddos who use augmentative devices for speech. I have worked with kids who are highly anxious. I have worked with kids who don't have a care in the world. I have worked with kids who use sign language. I have worked with kids, you know, with trauma. I have worked with kids with a ton of mental health challenges. I've worked with kids who, you know, by all other standards would be considered completely neurotypical and sort of non-specialized. Non so, you know, your quote unquote regular kids. And let me tell you, there is no such thing. While a kid may, you know, come to me in session and, and maybe present it as a quote-unquote regular kid, there is no such thing. Every kid has these different variables involved in their learning and to say that there is one particular kind of individual that makes them regular or neurotypical is completely flawed. It's flawed conceptually and it's flawed in application because in application you, you can't achieve that goal, nor would you want to if you could. Okay. Like everything, we need to keep perspective. You know, we may have a kid in our class, let's call him Jimmy, and you know, he may be neurodivergent and he may have autism or ADHD or something else that's, you know, unique and wonderful. And he may engage in some repetitive behaviors, self-regulatory behaviors. Maybe he rocks or he flaps or he flicks, whatever it is. This might make it difficult for his teacher to focus. I get that. It could be a visual distraction, an auditory distraction for other people. If it's not posing a problem for Jimmy's focus, then why am I as an educator going to modify it? In the same breath, maybe Jimmy's peers are distracted by his rocking. And in this case, perhaps that's a valid concern. But what message are we sending to Jimmy if we tell him your self-regulation strategy is bothering your friends and you'll need to stop? as opposed to saying to his friends or his peers, Jimmy needs to do that to self-regulate. I'm so sorry it's bothering you. How can we help you compensate for that? How can we help you self-regulate so that his self-regulation doesn't throw you off track? Why is Jimmy's self-regulation strategy lesser than the self-regulatory strategies of his peers? And at the end of the day, it's because one is neurodivergent. One is, you know, less common, let's say, versus the others, which are, you know, self-regulatory strategies that might be exhibited by more kids in the class. But if we've learned anything from, you know, sitting back and listening more, from checking our privilege, it's that no one's, no one's needs, no one's, you know, strategies, self-regulatory needs, um, no one's, no one's sense of self, no one's requirements are any less valid just because they occur less frequently or are less known or are less talked about. Again, we need to keep perspective. Jimmy is rocking quietly and regulating himself. 
Why can't the class just go on as usual? It probably can. Stopping Jimmy's rocking might be more of a disturbance to his peers because he's not able to actually regulate. And in that case, if you're saying, you know, Jimmy, your rocking is really distracting to your peers and you trigger a meltdown in Jimmy, how do you feel the meltdown will be for his peers? If we're really gonna start, you know, saying whose values or whose needs are more important than the other, we end up in this snowball where is a peer's minor discomfort more pressing, more needing of change than the potential for Jimmy to be an extreme discomfort because we're taking away a coping mechanism that he needs in order to, you know, hack it in class, in order to regulate, in order to enjoy and learn. If we're saying, oh, his peers have a right to an education and they can't learn if Jimmy is, you know, making quiet noises with his mouth while the teacher speaks. What about Jimmy's right to an education? What about Jimmy's right to be there regardless of, and not in spite of, but because of the fact that he is another human being in the room with the same values, the same, you know, this, he's worthy of the same respect. Okay, again, perspective is vital. A behavior that could be dangerous or harmful to Jimmy if it's self-regulatory or otherwise, if it's gonna compromise safety, obviously this is a valid target for a behavior change plan. This is a valid thing for a teacher to say, oh my goodness, we simply can't allow, you know, Jimmy to engage in this behavior that could be dangerous for himself. If, you know, taking scissors to his skin is a way that he regulates, so of course, you know, we can't allow Jimmy to harm himself in that way. But by the same token, any of his peers' behaviors that fall into that category is fair game too. And while it may feel more like equality than equity, I assure you that meeting each child where they are and supporting their needs in a way that is fair and balanced is equity at its finest. So how can a teacher pivot to support neurodiversity, equity, and avoid these evilist practices in their classroom? How can a parent advocate for practices that support rather than stifle their child's success in school? Well, the first thing is to look critically at some of these strategies that we have been implementing in classrooms for as long as I've been in the field and, you know, long before, probably. The idea, um, you know, that we, in order to be focused, in order to be listening, in order to be absorbing, knowledge and content and learning in our classroom that we need to be listening with our whole body is flawed. It's ableist. You know, the idea that we're listening with our whole body, again, it's a, it's a good idea in theory, but when you unpack it and you really look at the sort of what's at the core of that message, it really sends the message that there's only one way to listen. And that way to listen is to, you know, sit with quiet legs, which, I mean, like, what does that even mean? Um, quiet hands, which usually a teacher would define as, you know, hands clasped or hands in your lap or hands on your desk, um, eyes looking, so, you know, looking towards the speaker, um, mouth quiet, so lips together. And these are all ways that we sort of operationalize or define our success criteria. So you might have a teacher say, okay, it's time for science. Remember, we're going to be using whole body listening. We're going to be listening with our whole body today. What does that mean? It means legs are still, hands are quiet. Um, and by the way, yes, quiet hands is actually what is said a lot of the time, despite like 
what does that even mean? My hands aren't particularly noisy, not even when they're flapping. Um, but again, I digress. So, you know, mouth together, lips together, quiet mouth, however a teacher might define it. And the expectation here is that in my lesson, you will sit and show me you are listening with your whole body. Um, and listen, again, I get it. I have a kindergartner who needs to learn, you know, what is expected in a classroom when a teacher is instructing. And I do understand that classroom expectations and classroom behavior is important. But I think what's not hitting the nail on the head in this sort of ableist practice is that we're saying there's only one way to listen with your whole body. That couldn't be farther from the truth. I have so many kids, I, frankly, I have so many staff that in meetings listen so much better when they're clicking a pen. You know, they listen so much better when they can tap their foot or, you know, they focus better on the speaker when they can avert their gaze and they can look at something else off into the distance. And it may look like they're zoning out, but they're not and they're actually focusing much better. Um, and that's extremely common. Um, so the idea that there's one way to listen, that you're going to listen with your whole body, I mean, I, I get it, but it's not, it's not accurate. It's not, um, it's not rooted in really anything other than observable, you know, observable behavior. So you're telling me the only way you can know if I'm listening is what my body looks like, the way my body is positioned. To me, that seems like a lazy move. If you want to know if I'm listening, ask me a comprehension question. If I'm not listening, then then go from there. If I am listening, then slow your roll. Okay, the next one, the thing, and this is something I touched on in whole body listening, but it's something that I hear all the time. It's the idea of quiet hands. Quiet hands. I don't know who made this up. I don't know where it came from. All I know is that in my training, and for many years after that, um, I was told by people I was working with that that was a way that we cued students to have, you know, hands down, basically. Um, you know, it, quiet hands means, you know, hands are not moving, hands are not flicking, flapping, they're not playing with anything, they're not distracting. And I think the idea that, again, you know, you, you need to have quiet hands in any situation is possibly flawed. Um, and, and, you know, also, people sometimes do better when they're fidgeting. So to say, you know, at any point that you're going to require quiet hands, unless it's an activity that you literally cannot complete unless your hands are still. And if that's the case, then can we just go ahead and say still hands? Because the idea that hands would be quiet is number one, confusing for somebody who is a literal thinker. Like, what does that mean? And number two, it's not something that we hear in the real world. So if you're teaching your kid a cue for safety, like let's say you're, I don't know, cooking at the stove and you want their, I don't know, you want their hand to be still or something as they're stirring as opposed to, you know, frantic and shaking or I don't, I don't even know. I honestly can't even think of a situation in which quiet hands would be generalizable, but let's just say it was. In that situation, you're not likely to say as you're cooking at the stove, quiet hands. You're likely to say, you know, still hands or, you know, stir carefully or, or something specific, way more specific than quiet hands. So if we can just stop saying quiet hands, if we can just realize that, you know, sometimes kids are going to do way better when their hands are flapping. Um, you know, if we can just realize that, like, sometimes kids need to scratch to listen. Sometimes kids need to, like, rub their fingers together and, like, that's fine. Like, I don't know why a teacher feels the need to control the way my hands look 
or behave unless it's getting in the way of learning. But again, if it is, then can we just be specific about what we should be doing instead? That would really just sort of pivot that and really take that uh, something that is really flawed at its core. It's saying that if your hands are not quiet, you're wrong. If your hands are flapping, you're wrong. Um, and while it may not be outwardly saying wrong, it's definitely not right. And if it's not right, kids are smart enough to realize that the opposite of that is wrong and is not correct. Okay, so another example that I think happens a lot in schools, and it happens with good intentions, and it happens in intervention as well, is when a clinician changes a behavior so that a client doesn't get made fun of or bullied. This is the hard one. No parent wants to see their kid get bullied. I completely understand that. But why are we going to focus on changing a behavior for a child that isn't bothered by the behavior itself rather than changing the behavior of the peers who are judging or who are bullying? This to me is just like messed up. Why do you focus your energy on changing, you know, Billy's hand flapping when you could just spend the time to educate his peers and let them know that being judgmental or that bullying a kid who's engaging in hand flapping or hair twirling or whatever is is just wrong. It's rude. It's a character flaw. Like why are we going to treat hand flapping or I don't know, like what are other behaviors that I've seen people want changed? Like wearing their shirts backwards or um, only wearing a certain color. Like these are these are things that sometimes are targeted in behavior interventions. Oh, they're so rigid. They'll only, they'll only wear red shirts. That's not practical. They're going to get made fun of. Why are we going to waste our time focusing on that for that kiddo when it's not hurting them? When the bullying behavior that is exhibited by their peers is definitely going to be something very difficult for that peer to overcome later on in life. You don't want to be a bully into your adulthood. You don't want to have that bullying behavior. The bullying behavior is way more concerning than the behavior of, I don't know, wearing your shirt backwards or other only wanting to talk about um, science, the solar system, whatever. Okay, a couple more and then I'm going to leave you with that. And I'm happy to unpack this on Instagram in my DMs if you have thoughts, concerns, or questions, but let's keep rolling. Eye contact. Eye contact is a huge point of concern for me. And of course, you have to look in the direction of someone that you are engaging with. But I have no idea in what mixed up world we think it's okay to expect kids to engage in eye contact all of the time, number one. Number two, when they're having like really big feelings and they could be anxious, they could be stressed, they could be in sensory overload. Um, and why we focus so intensely on eye contact as a prerequisite skill for social interaction. The idea that that eye-to-eye -eye contact is a requirement in order to be a successful adult is completely broken. Of course you need social convention. Of course you need to know to look towards the person you're speaking to so that they know you're addressing them. You know, of course you need to know that your, you know, your face should be pointed in the direction of someone you're talking to or referring to, you know, that you should be looking generally somewhere in the proximity of their face. But the idea that there ever has to be direct eye-to-eye -eye contact is just completely flawed. And I think neurodivergent adults will agree with me that they're doing just fine without that direct eye-to-eye -eye contact. Personally, I have had so many interviews with individuals that I can tell the direct eye contact is aversive for. You know, they, they'll make fleeting eye contact and then they'll focus on other things. It's just, it's completely 
it's completely regular and it's it's just so foreign to me that in any intervention there would be a requirement for that forced eye contact. Um, it's aversive. I even heard parenting experts say, you know, you want to be make sure making sure that you're giving your kids direct eye contact and you want to make sure that you're requiring direct eye contact back. And listen, eye contact might be great and it might be super reinforcing for one kid, but it might be really, really aversive for another. So please stop painting everyone with that same brush. Stop saying that, you know, these are things we must do. These are things we can do. And if eye contact is reinforcing, awesome. And if high fives are reinforcing, awesome. But if they're not, we're not going to say you must give your kid a high five. All right, onward. There is a, as kids get older, as our, you know, neurodivergent population ages, they tend to have these areas of interest and fixation on this hyper-focus sort of where they have an interest that they really like. And it may be um, a cartoon or it may be a particular, you know, niche subject like, I don't know, the Milky Way or um, science broadly or, you know, ancient history, I don't know, whatever it could be. Um, I think there is a tendency to not steer into that and to, you know, make statements like, well, you know, in order to achieve this, this goal, this child is going to have to talk about at least five different things or else we just can't simply move them on. And to me, this is so, I mean, of course, learn to talk about other things, but why are you going to make mastery criteria built on something that is not going to be useful or generalizable for this kid. Why are we going to say to, you know, a child who might be 12, who let's say loves um, the Wiggles, that they can't talk about that with their peers, or they can only talk about that to a maximum of, I don't know, some arbitrary number, because I've seen that also, in order for it to be appropriate in any other, you know, request to talk about it beyond that number going to be ignored. How can we do that? And how can we say that, you know, that interest isn't age appropriate and therefore you can't have it. There are so many adults that have what you might consider not age appropriate interests. I know so many adults who are obsessed with cat memes. Are cats an age appropriate interest? I'm not sure. I don't really care though. And I can tell you for sure that if I had a kid that was super, super interested in the wiggles or cats or anything, I would be like, cool, let's lean into that. Let's see how we can make that the basis of our conversation and of our connection, as opposed to limiting the number of interactions we can have in that topic. The other thing is that a lot of individuals who are neurodivergent move on in life to pursue careers in their areas of fixation. You're telling me that a doctor, you know, who is in advanced medicine in like, I don't know, um, immunology, doesn't have an intense fixation or interest in immunology. Of course they did. That's how they got to where they are. So let's not, you know, say that what we sort of feel socially appropriate for a 12-year-old is the only possible route for interest. Let's not say that the Wiggles can't possibly be something we talk about if we're over some arbitrary age. Um, I, I can guarantee you that the Wiggles are adults. I can guarantee you that they like to do what they do, it's their job. So let's not say, again, that that's not age appropriate. And I bet you also, there are writers who write for shows like The Wiggles. There are producers, there are directors, there are all kinds of other people who work in that realm of children's television. So if that is your jam, then go for it. And please stop putting arbitrary caps on what is and is not age appropriate. All right, a couple more and then we are through. So 
teaching. Teaching according to the neurotypical profile is not going to get you the results that you want. And, you know, throwing your hands up and saying, well, you know, it worked for all the other kids and I can't help it if it won't work for the kid that is neurodivergent is an antiquated and frankly lazy way to teach. And I encourage you to not only try to meet your neurodivergent kiddos where they are, but also whatever works for them, try it on your other kiddos too. Because I guarantee you that your students that are, you know, um, fitting into that, that square peg that you're teaching from, I bet you they would also enjoy what your neurodivergent kiddo enjoys. And I bet you that if you switched it up, you would see that there's a lot more diversity in your classroom than what you were acknowledging. All right, the last thing that I wanna talk about, and it's a big one, modifications and accommodations. Number one, what are they? A modification is the what, the what piece of the curriculum, the accommodation is the how piece. So if we're going to modify our curriculum, that means that we're going to modify the perhaps grade level or um, the actual content itself. If we're going to accommodate, that means that we are not going to change the curriculum. We are going to change how we teach it in a way that it you know aligns with the needs of our kids. So this is something that I think is often overlooked and parents don't realize, you know, they'll say, well, my child is working at grade level, so they may not need an IEP. And I think the truth is that whether or not you're working at grade level is really only 50% of what could be modified in an IEP. The other 50% is the how they're being taught. So they may be working at grade level, but they may not be um, performing well. They may not be showing the skills they know, and it may be because of how they're being taught that needs to be adjusted based on you know, a ton of factors, but oftentimes because of their profile, because of neurodiversity, because of diagnoses that are there that, you know, change the way that their brain is wired and change the way that, you know, they receive information and the way that they learn best. So if we are able to work towards overcoming some of those systemic barriers, then we are at least, you know, one big step ahead than we were before. And we are starting to recognize that even as teachers, as educators, as therapists, we are coming from a place of privilege. We are coming from a place where we don't know what it's like to be on the other end of our therapy, of our education. And if we can start to put ourselves in their shoes, if we can start to really pivot and lean into equity and not equality, and really lean into celebrating the neurodivergent profile, we are not only going to be doing our clients and our students a service in terms of just, you know, respect, but I, I think that our students and our clients are going to feel that respect and it's going to translate into improved rapport and it's going to translate into improved outcomes. If we're not trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, our outcome is going to be much more impactful for our learner, for our student, and at the end of the day, that's why we're here. That's, we're here to set up our, our students, our clients, our kiddos for life in the future. And if we are not championing them now, and if we're not saying lean in to your, you know, hyper-focus, your fixations, your areas of expertise, you know, the way your brain processes information, if we're not doing that, then we're missing the mark.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Science Drives Wellness Steers. It's been amazing hanging out with you, and I am so grateful for your willingness to let me in. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating. I'm a behaviorist, remember, and I am all about that reinforcement and that data. Until next time, stay well and stay grounded.